you're listening to the Pursuit of Christ podcast, where we are passionate about developing a deeper relationship with Jesus. The Pursuit of Christ podcast is a ministry of Arise Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. If you would like to contact us or have questions about our podcast, we can be reached via email at info at arisebaptistchurch.org. Now here's James Collard with today's challenge from Scripture. Last week, we looked at the long-standing conflict between the Israelites and the Amalekites, and we gained a greater appreciation for the foreboding that the original readers would have experienced with the entrance of our antagonist, Haman the Agagite. Xerxes had promoted Haman to be the chief administrator over the entire empire. His title was probably that of vizier or prime minister. One might have expected Mordecai to be promoted after his heroic action at the end of chapter 2, but instead Haman is elevated and Mordecai is forgotten. And that's where we pick up our story today. Haman's new position was one deserving of respect. He was now the second most powerful man in the world at that time. The king's servants were expected to bow down and show respect to Haman, which is something that Mordecai refused to do. Notice verse 2. All the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So the king expected his servants to prostrate themselves and to show respect to Haman. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Now, it's unlikely that all the officials were asked to actually worship Haman. That's not what's happening here, although that did happen sometimes in the ancient world. The idea of reverence in this text simply means to give Haman the respect that was due his exalted position as second in command of the entire empire. The king's servants asked Mordecai why he refused to honor Haman. Notice verse 3. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Mordecai answers their questions by appealing to his ethnicity, the fact that he is a Jew. Thus, it would seem that Mordecai's refusal to bow down and show respect to Haman is more due to the ancient antagonism between Israel and Amalek rather than his own personal religious convictions. It, it wouldn't have been sinful for Mordecai to show respect to Haman, one who was in a position of authority over him. So it, it wouldn't have been a sinful action. And Loken, in his commentary, he's very helpful here. He states, Jacob bowed to the ground seven times when he met his brother Esau. His actions were repeated by his servants and wives. The inhabitants of, e of Egypt, including Jews, were required to bow down before Joseph. When his brothers come to Egypt to buy food, Joseph allows them to bow before him with their faces to the ground. When Moses greeted Jethro, his father-in-law, he bowed down and kissed him. Ruth bowed to the ground before Boaz. David fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times before Jonathan. Abigail fell on her face and bowed to the ground before David. Bathsheba prostrated herself before David and uttered, "'May my lord King David live forever.'" Daniel pays homage to Darius when he states, O king, live forever. A popular expression designed to denote deity among pagan kings who often considered themselves to be gods. 
Nehemiah uses the same expression when he pays homage to King Artaxerxes, let the king live forever. None of these give the impression that the act of bowing down and or paying homage to one in authority is wrong. In fact, some of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament are found among those who performed this act, end quote. So Mordecai's refusal to show Haman respect is based, I think, on his distaste for Haman as an Amalekite, as well as Haman's obviously strong anti-Semitic bias that comes on in the next couple of verses. Now, Haman's response to Mordecai's defiance is indicative of his character. Nothing reveals a man's character more clearly than when he is placed in a position of authority and influence. Notice verses 5 and 6. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. So Haman's anger at Mordecai causes him to plot revenge by exterminating an entire ethnic people group. This is an incredibly rash action that it's strictly an attempt to appease Haman's own pride. We can see that Haman is repeatedly depicted as a man of anger throughout this book. Wearsby, in his commentary, states, Everything about Haman is hateful. You can't find one thing about this man worth praising. In fact, everything about Haman, God hated. Think about the verse in Proverbs. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Keep these several even or keep these seven evil characteristics in mind as you read the book of Esther, for you will see them depicted in this depraved man. That is a strong statement, but one that is absolutely true as we examine Haman's character throughout the book. Now, verse seven signals a move forward in the narrative. Esther has been queen for four years at this point. Haman, in his quest to exterminate the Jews, puts his diabolical plan into action. His anger has flamed beyond reasonability. Now he will be satisfied with nothing less than killing all the Jews in Persia. Wearsby, again, he elaborates. Like a cancerous tumor, Haman's hatred for Mordecai soon developed into hatred for the whole Jewish race. Haman could have reported Mordecai's crime to the king, and the king would have imprisoned Mordecai or perhaps had him executed, but that would not have satisfied Haman's lust for revenge. No, his hatred had to be nourished by something bigger, like the destruction of a whole nation. Now, Haman, to generate goodwill from the gods upon his quest, casts lots to determine the best possible date to put his, to put his plan into action. This is explained in verse 7. And the text says, They cast pur, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day, and from month to month, to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. So what happens here is that Haman sits down and he begins to consult with his gods. 
And eventually the lot fell on the 13th day in the month of Adar, the 12th month. So what this did was it gave the Jewish population in Persia almost a year to prepare for their impending doom. So now that Haman had the day locked into place, he moved to phase two of his plan. He had to secure permission from the king to actually exterminate the Jews to put his plan into motion. Notice the different phrases that he uses in his argument in verses 8 and 9. And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. Haman is an expert manipulator. He intentionally attempts to deceive the king with half-truths and mischaracterizations. Bush, in his commentary, he elaborates, and he quotes, Here, Haman reveals himself as a shrewd, clever, and malignant slanderer. He begins by suppressing the identity of the people, speaking simply of one people, a usage that insinuates that his people, or the issue of their annihilation, is insignificant. Yet they are scattered and unassimilated among all the peoples in the provinces of the empire. Scattered in all the provinces is not only hyperbole, but is made into an accusation by the addition of the word unassimilated or separate, referring to their different social and religious customs, i.e. they are everywhere, a different, sinister, and ubiquitous presence. From innuendo and half-truth, he moves to outright yet blatantly false accusations. For the action of the Jews as a people throughout the book are thoroughly law-abiding. Thus, with a series of, innu of innuendos, half-truths, and outright lies, Haman has made the case that this unnamed people is omnipresent and lawless, and hence constitute an insidious threat to the king's welfare, end quote. To seal the deal, Haman offers to make a 10,000-talent donation to the royal treasury. This sum was equivalent to eight months of income for the king. This is not a small amount. Now, Haman probably assumed that he could recoup some of that money by plundering the possessions of the Jews after they were eliminated. Thus, in Haman's mind, this was a necessary investment to move forward with his plan. Haman was probably confident that Xerxes would accept this proposal because the royal treasury had taken a significant hit after Xerxes' ill-fated expedition into Greece. Now, we need to take a pause here, and we have to ask the question, was slaughter on this scale normal in the ancient world? I mean, think about what Haman is asking. He wants to exterminate an entire people group. Herodotus, the famed Greek historian, certainly felt like this action was not without precedent in the Persian Empire. Loken, summarizing Herodotus in his commentary, states, In 522 BC, Galmata, who belonged to the Magus, uh, Magus caste, usurped the throne after the death of the emperor Cambyses, and he attempted to pass himself off as Smyrdas, the murdered brother of Cambyses. 
The ruse was discovered eight months later, and Smyrdas was assassinated by the Persians. Immediately following the assassination of Smyrdas, there was an attempt to kill every Magus in the empire. The Persians went through the streets of the capital, striking dead every Magus that they could find. The slaughter would have been complete but for the coming of darkness. The anniversary of this day is celebrated with a festival known as Magophonia, or literally the killing of the Magi, during which no Magus is allowed to go out in public for the duration of the feast. So I think that we can see that such violence is not without precedence in the Persian Empire. It's not an exaggeration on the part of the biblical author. Haman is literally attempting to exterminate an entire ethnicity because of his unchecked anger and thirst for revenge. Xerxes, who is expertly manipulated by Haman, states, Do with them as it seemeth good to thee. This is a chilling statement, and one that really shows Xerxes' low view of human life. According to verse 12, this edict is written on the 13th day of the first month, or the day before the Passover celebration. The irony is unmistakable here. The biblical author is having some fun as he writes this. Because the day before the Jews were to celebrate their delivery from Egypt, I mean, the Passover was celebrated with a big feast and celebration. So on the day before the Jews were to celebrate their delivery from Egypt, they are marked for extermination. And God's people find themselves once again in need of deliverance from a foreign ruler. Xerxes approved the expenditure and he gave Haman his signet ring to carry out this plan. When a letter was sealed with the imprint of the king's signet ring, the recipient of that letter could be sure that the contents of that letter came with the authority of the king. So Xerxes has given Haman all of the necessary authority and the autonomy needed to carry out this plan. The decree went out with the command to destroy, kill, and cause to perish all Jews. None were exempt as the decree explicitly covered young and old, little children and women. So the death document is written and then sent out across the entire empire so that all could be notified of the impending destruction of the Jews. Verse 15 is, to me, one of the most chilling verses in all of Scripture. It states, The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. After Haman initiates this plan, he sits down to celebrate with the king. A document authorizing the annihilation of tens of thousands has been issued, and he sits down to toast his success. But while he celebrated, the city is thrown into a state of turmoil. Of turmoil. Loken states there is a striking contrast in the last verse. While the king and Haman celebrated, the city was in confusion. No doubt the common citizen could not believe that such a decree had been issued. And that's where we leave our story today. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, has put his evil plot into motion. And the Jews are left with almost an entire year to dread their impending doom. God needs to work. His people are at risk. 
Next week, all of the pieces will start to fall into place as we see how God is sovereignly orchestrating behind the scenes to achieve the preservation of his chosen people. But before we sign off today, we need to ask ourselves, where do we see God's sovereign plan in motion? I look all the way back to verse 7, when Haman was casting lots. He was trying to seek approval from his gods to find the perfect day on which to launch his assault on the Jews. And the lot fell almost a year away. This is God, Yahweh God, the sovereign God at work. That lot could have fallen on a day much closer that would have given the Jews less time to prepare. But in giving the Jews almost a year, God was providing time to put the rest of his plan into motion to preserve his people. The lot falling a year away is not coincidence. God was working behind the scenes, even as Haman thought that he had found the perfect day on which to attack the Jews with the blessing of his gods. It's God's sovereignty at work. But what then is today's application, our lesson for the marketplace? I think that we need to be reminded of the dangers of unchecked anger. Haman is instructive for us. His wrath at Mordecai's disrespect consumed him until he was no longer content with punishing just Mordecai. His anger allowed him to justify the extermination of an entire people group. And we as believers, we need to be on guard against anger. So how do we mortify or put to death sinful anger in our lives? I believe that humbling ourselves is the only way to assassinate our anger. Why? Because anger is fueled by sinful pride. We see that in the life of Haman. The disrespect given to him by Mordecai fuels the anger that then fleshes itself out in the writing of this death document. We need to cut anger's supply train in our life, and that's accomplished by two ways. First, we need to pray. We know that we need to pray, but when we are struggling with the emotion of anger, we don't want to pray. We should expect this, and we need to fight through our emotions to pray anyway. If we are willing to fight through our emotional roadblocks, we'll find that praying from our heart and pouring out our emotions to God will defuse our anger. We need to honestly and frankly confess our anger to God, repent of our sinful attitude, and ask for God's sovereign grace to help us trust Him with things that we seem to not be able to give over to Him. We need to trust Him with the things that we say, I can't, I can't, I can't give those over to God. We need to trust him with those things. We need to give them over to him. And second, I think we need to talk about our sinful anger with other people. Pride hates honest confession to brothers in Christ. Talking to Christian friends about our sinful anger wages war on both our anger and the sinful pride that lurks behind it. It helps us to clear our mind and to think biblically. And getting biblical input into our life helps to correct our perspective and adjust our thinking. So I think that forcing ourselves to be honest with and accountable to another brother exposes our unbiblical thinking and it forces us to confront our pride. It is up to us then to honestly address the pride when it is exposed and to be doers of the word as James commands us to be.
John Bloom states, Killing sinful anger is hard. It's an insidious lie disguised in a robe of justice, and it is spiritually malignant. When it is metastasizing, it feels deceptively life-giving to indulge, and humbling ourselves feels like death. But the opposite is true. Remember the words of Peter in 1 Peter 5, 5, and 6. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Remember the words of James. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Commit to giving your sinful anger to the Lord. Humble yourself. Don't be a Haman. Don't let the cancer of anger spread in your life. Pray, confess, get accountability, have others speak truth into your life. Walk in humility. Well, next week, we'll see the purpose behind God allowing Esther to be chosen as the queen of Persia. The pieces will start to fall into place as our story begins to move more quickly toward its inevitable showdown. And I hope that you'll join us again next week as we continue to move forward in the story of Esther. If there's anything that we can do to help you, if you need prayer or encouragement, we hope that you'll reach out to us here at Arise. You can reach us via email at info at arisebaptistchurch.org or connect with us on Facebook. There is nothing that would please us more than to encourage you and to help you take the next spiritual step in your walk with Jesus. Well, thank you so much for listening today, and we'll see you again next week. God bless, and have a wonderful weekend.